Welcome to No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg. As you've probably heard since our last episode about Novak Djokovic being granted an exemption into the Australian Open, things have gotten considerably hairier for him in this story. And to make sense of all of it, to untangle all the various tendrils of the story, I'm very delighted to be joined by Paul Sakal, who is the uh, Victoria political reporter for The Age, the big local paper here in Melbourne. Paul, thank you for, for joining today. Thanks very much for having me, Ben, on a podcast that once a year when I become a tennis fan in the Australian Open, I like to listen to myself. Oh, good. Well, glad, glad to hear, you know, long-time listener, occasional listener, first-time caller. It's always good. So I guess Novak Djokovic, obviously, we sort of did our last show. I don't know if you heard that, but you didn't need to. When he got on his plane, basically, or was getting on his plane and coming and sort of about the anger that there was in Australia towards this uh, announcement that he had gotten an exemption. When he got to the airport in the Telemarine, the airport in Melbourne, things got considerably more complicated for him. Uh, this all happened sort of overnight while I was asleep, and I woke up trying to make sense of everything that was happening here and hearing he was being held at the airport and seeing you know, photoshops of the Tom Hanks movie, The Terminal, with Novak's face in them and things like that. Uh, what, what what happened? Like in the sort of short version or longer version, we'll obviously go into lots of details and different threads of this in this episode, but what happened to make things different than Certainly Novak Djokovic anticipated they would be in Tennis Australia, anticipated they would be uh, upon its arrival. I think in terms of uh, understanding the, the dynamics when he arrived, it's probably best to start at the point of his Instagram post, which was the mm-hmm. night before. So there have been weeks and weeks of speculation as to whether he'd arrive. And the consensus view in, inside both the Victorian and the federal government was that he probably would not uh, gain the exemption from Tennis Australia and the Victorian panels that initially gave him the exemption to play at the at the at the tournament, um, and particularly in the federal government, who had no real which had no real oversight over any of those processes, they were very surprised when they saw his Instagram post announcing that he had an exemption by the Victorian government panel, the Victorian Health Department, which the Victorian government which oversees the the Victorian based Australian Open. It's a sub national government, and also the uh, the Australia uh, Tennis Australia panel. Once that Instagram post uh, was made, I think it was that would have been Tuesday night. Um, the Home Affairs Minister of the Federal Government, Karen Andrews, put out an unusual statement where she said that uh, the Federal Government would be applying its border rules regardless of the individual and regardless of any exemption that some organisational panel or state government had given an individual because those, those exemptions have no status when someone is arriving in a border. To gain a visa and to come in if you're an unvaccinated person into Australia you need to prove to Australian border force officials who are clearly run by the federal government or employed by the federal government that you have a a valid reason for a vaccine exemption. Just a few hours before that statement, uh, the Prime Minister in a a press conference was asked if he was okay with the fact that the Victorian government might have um, granted Novak an exemption. He said that was a matter for the Victorian government and if any state government had given a player an exemption, it was their exemption uh, to handle and normal processes will be gone through, but an exemption is an exemption. And if someone has a valid reason, then they'll come in. But that radically shifted as the day went on when we saw this really hard line statement from from the Home Affairs Minister, which indicated that the government was going to take a hard line on Novak when he arrived. Then about, I think it would have been about five or six hours later after the uh, statement from the Home Affairs Minister on the night Novak arrived, about 11 o'clock, the acting sports minister of Victoria put out a very unusual tweet, which got a lot of journalists freaking out, saying that the Victorian government has 
uh, rejected a request from federal authorities to effectively sponsor Novak's visa. That prompted me and a few others who were still up that, at that time of night, it was probably 11.30, to put in some inquiries about exactly what that request from the federal government was and what the process was for Novak entering the country because we knew it was about the time when he was landing. So this seemed, this seemed a very big moment that we needed to jump on. We were then told that at about 8 o'clock, so three or four hours before Novak arrived, federal officials called Victorian officials and th there are different recollections of exactly what they said, but, but broadly... They asked questions about his visa and they asked questions about his vaccine exemption that the Victorian government had given him to play at the tennis. And they wondered on what basis it was given and what evidence there was to support it. They asked the Victorian government to provide more evidence for his vaccine exemption. The Victorian government said, we have no role in supporting his visa. The Victorian government, I believe, because they didn't want to cop political blowback for seeming to uh, assist Novak in his entry, because that would have been a politically uh, difficult thing for them to do. They backed away and did this tweet and said, if you want to let him into the country, that's in your court. They put it on the federal officials um, to make their own call. So when he arrived, it was clear that uh, really the Victorian government had in some way abandoned him. They weren't going to come in and vouch for him and put their name to his visa, which, which would have given the federal government an ability to kind of, to kind of put blame on the Victorian government for allowing, allowing him in. And when he arrived about 11.30, he was immediately whisked away into a small room um, just beside the main part of the airport. His coach, Goran Ivanisevic, and, and another member of his team were taken elsewhere. Uh, there were claims that his mobile phone was taken off him, although th those claims were later refuted by border officials. And in the hours after 11.30 p.m., they asked a series of questions about what documentation he had to prove that he had had a COVID infection in the past six months and who, which doctors supported it and which other medical authorities or uh, whatever uh, were backing his claim. I've, I learned late last night uh, in a story that we published, published in our newspaper today that he only had one doctor supporting his claim and many of his, um, his documents had Tennis Australia letterhead on them. Um, so he had very, very little um, what you describe as original documentation from practitioners around the world to substantiate his claim. It's also unclear... Uh, and there have been differing versions put to me on this, so I haven't written a story on it because I haven't been able to really clarify it. It was unclear whether he actually had a laboratory result proving that he had COVID in the last six months. There have been three other, sorry, two other officials and players, uh, one official, one player, in the weeks before Novak arrived, who arrived on the exact same exemption as Novak. They had PCR laboratory test results proving their infection, and they had, one had, I believe, I believe three doctors, the other one had four doctors substantiating their claims. So hmm. border officials looked at Novak's claims and said, this is materially less substantive than the previous people who have come in. They asked him over the course of the eight-hour interrogation to, to give more documents. Uh, Tennis Australia became involved. Uh, they, couldn't, they couldn't give anything more substantive. The Victorian government said, hey, um, we've got nothing to do with this. We're not going to help and provide anything else, if anything else existed. And by about 5 a.m., 4 a.m., the federal officials were quite sure that the end outcome was going to be uh, a visa cancellation. They didn't see any way around this because Novak was not being helpful and there was no more evidence being, being put forward. Then at about 7 a.m., I got told that that outcome was going to occur. I spent about an hour trying to confirm that. And by just after 8 a.m., um, we published our first story saying that 
he was gone and that he was about to, um, his lawyers were in the process of filing a federal court injunction to stop that. Well, I appreciate your sleepless night for covering all this, uh, this saga. As I, as I snoozed, it was a lot to wake up to, and you did a great job of assembling all of this and making the pieces get together. I want to back up a bit to this panel, this Victoria panel. So after Novak put out his Instagram post and his other social media posts saying, I got, a, I think he called it an exemption permission to get on the plane, uh, Tennis Australia put out its own statement confirming that Novak had gotten a medical exemption to get on the flight. We weren't completely sure in the first post if it was a medical exemption or some sort of other strange exemption he'd gotten. Uh, but they confirmed it was a medical exemption and then talked about their rigorous process, uh, to use their word, of two panels uh, that they had convened to to look at these, these cases and to examine the various uh, exemption applications they got. And they later said they got 26 exemption applications and only a handful had been had been approved. Um, but I guess I'm wondering what the point of these exemption panels was if their rulings didn't have any sway at the border, ultimately. You know, it would seem like if you get an exemption, it should it should be something that opens doors for you to the country. And it, it, it didn't, it seems like it failed to do that. So were these just recommendation letters? Or what, what was the sort of legal standing of these Victoria and Tennis Australia panels, and and was and was possibly Djokovic um, misguided, or whether that someone did that intentionally to him or unintentionally, about how much efficacy the determinations of those panels would have when he got to the border. It's a really good question. I think this was the this was the point that confused both members of the public. I think the international media, international observers, and and the Australian public most yesterday it was really confusing to get to the bottom of this. The Victorian government, it would have been two days ago now, held a press conference with Craig Tiley, the boss of Tennis Australia, and the acting sports minister after Novak Djokovic's um, late night Instagram post saying he'd received an exemption, and the ministers and Craig Tiley went through in detail these two panels that were established for the purpose of assessing players' medical exemptions if they applied for one, uh, unvaccinated players, obviously. There were two panels set up. There was a Tennis Australia panel, which had a range of eminent immunologists and epidemiologists to assess claims. Uh, and there was then, sitting on top of that, a Victorian Health Department panel, also with a, with a bunch of experts. And both processes were run in a blind way where names are de-identified, country of origin is de-identified. So they didn't know if they were looking at Novak Djokovic or Tennis Sangren or whatever. Um, these processes unanimously and decisively approved Djokovic's uh, exemption. None, there was apparently no dissent on either panel, sources told me. And Tylee was very, very keen to boost the uh, legitimacy of these, these groups. He said they went above and beyond any other assessment for a medical exemption that you'd ever find by any medical panel. They spent weeks. They were the best experts in the field. So we, we had assumed that there was, when this, when this announcement occurred, I think the journalist assumed that there was some level of coordination between Tennis Australia and the Victorian government and the federal officials who approve visas. Because if you've got a Victorian uh, body saying you're allowed to come into the country to play this event, you would, you, would, you would think that there would be discussions with the federal officials who allow him into the country because if one doesn't match up with the other, then you've got a process in Victoria that's totally, uh, totally isolated and of no status. And it became clear that there actually was no communication between these bodies and the federal officials. The Victorian bodies, as the health minister, Martin Foley, explained yesterday, the Victorian health minister explained yesterday after Novak was blocked, he was very clear that, these Victorian bodies uh, were set up 
to assess whether it was safe and reasonable for an, Austra for a, for an unvaccinated player to enter Victoria and play at the Australian Open. These were essentially exemptions to play the Australian Open, uh, but they, they held no legal or regulatory status when it came to whether a person could enter Australia uh, at the border of be it Canberra, Sydney, wherever they arrived, or Melbourne in Djokovic's case. So, and this again ties into that day when Morrison, the, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison and his Home Affairs Minister put out those strong statements. They had heard the Victorian officials earlier in that day saying that Djokovic had received an exemption to play at the Australian Open. But their reaction was one of surprise because they were yet to see, the federal officials were yet to see the documentation that supported Djokovic's claim. So they really wanted to put their front foot forward and say, okay, there may be two Victorian panels that have, through whatever processes that they've gone through, the federal officials had no idea whether these were sham processes or whether they were very rigorous or whether they were, yeah, just designed to allow Djokovic in with a minimum of scrutiny. So they were very, very uh, keen to state that they were going to assess these claims with, with the proper rigour that border officials should. And when Djokovic arrived, they clearly did so. Now, the question, the question this, ra this raises many questions, but um, one key question is why were there two other Australian Open, one player and one official, um, allowed into Australia by the same border force officials in previous weeks using the same vaccine exemption that Djokovic used, which was that they had a prior infection in the last six months. Um, the health minister, Greg Hunt, it became clear yesterday, uh, wrote letters in November to Craig Tiley stating that yeah. any player who um, had had a COVID infection in the past six months and who had still not received two vaccines would not be deemed eligible for a vaccine exemption. So if the two Victorian panels were working under the assumption that a prior COVID infection in the last six months was a legitimate reason for a vaccine exemption, then they were directly contradicting the advice of the federal health minister, which was then applied by border officials in, in Djokovic's case. So we're still trying to get to the bottom of why the health minister's advice to Craig Tiley did not feed into these Victorian exemption panels and why Djokovic why Djokovic's exemption was granted by these Victorian bodies if that advice was given. Well, I guess, yeah, that's sort of my question is why would this, why would these panels in Tennis Australia as trying to, you know, create a process through which players can gain entry to Australia or permission to get, enter Australia and clearance, why would it do such an incomplete job of not contacting immigration authorities to see how that part of it would work? That seems like a really, if, you, if you're saying, yes, you have permission to enter Melbourne Park and be on our grounds in our locker rooms or wherever else, you know, facilities is getting greenlit that you would normally need uh, vaccination to get through. And all staff is required to have vaccination. All fans are required to have vaccination at the Australian Open um, media as well. Why why was this such an incomplete job they did there? Is that a question the Tennis Australia has to answer? Or is that something that somehow uh, the Victorian government let down? It just seems like a, a really, really incomplete job and that Djokovic potentially through less fault of his own on this side, you know, was present was told by Tennis Australia that things were taken care of when they when they really hadn't been. Yeah, I think we need to ask Tennis Australia these questions this whenever they have their press conference. And I think more more detail on these um, conversations between Tennis Australia and federal officials will come out in, in in reporting over the next few days. We know that there were you know hundreds or thousands of bits of correspondence between Tennis Australia and the Federal Health Department and Home Affairs in the months leading up to the Australian Open. They've been asking about quarantine arrangements. They've been, Tennis Australia has been asking about vaccine exemptions. 
there have been lots and lots of conversations about this topic. But as far as we're aware at this point, there was never any clear-cut agreement that if a player had a prior COVID infection, they would certainly be approved by border officials as being exempt from needing to be vaccinated. And until we kind of understand that, we understand otherwise, that in fact, border officials did assure Craig Tiley that a person who had a prior COVID infection would be able to get in. It raises serious questions about why Tennis Australia were of the belief that that exemption would get someone like Djokovic into the country. Clearly Djokovic placed a lot of faith in these two panels that he went through in Victoria uh, that were set up by Craig Tiley, who's a close personal, uh, I wouldn't say close, but a personal friend of Djokovic. They Mm -hmm. do talk quite regularly. So I'm sure Djokovic placed a lot of faith in Tiley's administration of these two exemption panels. I'm sure Djokovic's team would have placed a lot of faith in Craig Tiley's administration of these two Victorian exemption panels. And once they received the tick from those two Victorian panels, one would assume that they they were of the belief that when he entered the Australian border, those exemptions and the evidence he provided to those exemption panels would suffice. Clearly a different level of rigour um, was applied by the border officials to those uh, to the documents that he provided to the Victorians. Now, that raises the question of whether those border officials were acting on advice of ministers in the Morrison government or the Prime Minister's office to make a point of Djokovic, to block him because the federal government does not want to have a rich, uh, slightly unpopular in Australia, anti-vaxxer, who thinks that they can find a backdoor into Australia and kind of game the country's border policies. There certainly was a political element to it uh, in the hours when the exemption, uh, when the visa was being cancelled, the Prime Minister's office was directly involved. His officials were actively aware of the issue and feeding into the process in some way. Now, I'm not saying they were the decision makers, but they were very well across it. So Tennis Australia officials uh, privately are absolutely fuming and they believe the Morrison government uh, wanted to make a point an example of Djokovic and use him for political purposes. Now, um, whether or not that's right, I think we'll learn more in coming days, but that's certainly the view of tennis officials. To say briefly that Craig Tiley also got criticised, maybe not enough, honestly, in 2021 before the lead of the Australian Open, then for painting a rosier than probably appropriate picture for players of what quarantine requirements would be like upon arrival uh, to Australia, where many of them were placed, many more of them than expected were placed in hard quarantines after someone else on their charter flight tested positive, and there was seen as a disconnect between what was sort of being promised in terms of the ease of arrival in Australia and and what actually was the reality. And obviously, that applied to many players in sort of slightly less dramatic circumstances. And this is one very dramatic case with Djokovic um, getting the brunt of it, but it's still sort of maybe a similar kind of kind of mode of, of the messaging of tennis Australia to players being overly optimistic or rosy about how smooth things would be upon arrival in Australia. So that's just that's a sort of tennis point I wanted to make first. I guess how much in terms of we're talking about the time in which between when Djokovic announces exemption on social media, it really seems like the government here, certainly there's a lot of outcry here. Let's be clear. We talked about that our last episode. There's a lot of public anger on in media and social media, all sorts of things. It was a very unpopular decision um, publicly when Djokovic was coming here. How much did was that potentially a mistake from Novak to sort of telegraph his arrival and give the other side this much time to to mount a, a, a resistance to his to his arrival here? I mean, I was talking to Rafael Nadal's PR guy uh, the other day, and they they sort of said because Rafael had been sick and he and he's come back from COVID himself, 
they didn't want to say he was in Australia until there was like a picture of him smiling on the practice court, like, look, I'm here, I made it. And it was a nice delight for his fans, whereas Novak sort of played it the other way, went way in advance of I'm on my way. And it's possible that if he had been a little stealthier, maybe there wouldn't have been such resistance or, or like you said, or is it possible that just his documents were shabby and even under normal rigor, he would have run into more, more problems potentially uh, than those other people who had better, better documentation of the same exemption application. And the other thing I want to ask in there is you've been saying this fairly declaratively about what his exemption was. This has not been made public by him or by Tennis Australia. What, the, what his application consisted of, how how are you able to report that it was a, uh, a COVID positive in the past six months that was his his stated reason? Yeah, we've heard from Victorian and federal officials and Tennis Australia officials that that was his exemption. Okay. All of those all of those um, those organisations were were were, conf- were keeping his um, details confidential until yesterday's blow up. So I don't think we would have found out until. Uh, unless an incident like yesterday occurred where there became a debate about his level of documentation, because in order to have that debate, it needs to be understood what he's actually applying for. Um, so that's how we're aware of that. I think the caveat that you've given there at, at the end is important, Ben. In, in all the conversations we're having about the motivations of the federal government uh, potentially acting politically, uh, uh, the, the, the miscommunication or potentially misleading um, actions by a tennis Australia, it should just be noted that there is a potential that he would have got blocked either way, uh, no matter whose political motivations were in play, because his documentation was weak. That should always be noted as a as a side point in any conversation. But on in terms of the Instagram um, post, going back to your first question, um, there, there are definitely people in, in Tennis Australia and, and the Victorian government who think that the only reason the, the federal officials really were sparked into, um, into applying the level of rigour that they did was because he telegraphed this um, imminent arrival, because he telegraphed this exemption, and because of the media storm that that created in the, it was probably a little bit over 24 hours yeah. since the moment he posted to when he arrived. It led the media cycle for a day, and it, um, it's as you say, it sparked serious anger among the, among the public. We're a very highly vaccinated country. There is a sense around the world that Australia is a country of larrikins who are all kind of laissez-faire in their in their in their makeup and and um, and very kind of people who value individualism. Now that that might be right, kind of on an in an, on an individual basis, their larrikinism. But I can see you shaking your head. It's really yeah, not right. Yeah, no, these are pe- Australians in my in my experience here many times. Australians love rules. That was you literally caught my next sentence. We're a very yeah. rules-based society, and yeah. we we we're not a we're not a society that was based on um, founded on the principles of a revolution or anything like that. We were a country based on principles of a group of people who came from England and wanted to create a rules-based society that worked better than the home country. Um, and we 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 are we are comfortable with a role role of government in our lives and our appetite for accommodating anti-vaxxers who are very keen on individualism is really low. And as you'd know, Ben, and as all your tennis listeners would know, Djokovic has been booed at the, at the Australian Open many times before. He was booed last year. Uh, there's a real love in Melbourne who all become tennis mad during January. There's a real love for uh, Ra- Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal in this town. They, they are seen as just angels of sport who, um, who kind of come here once a year, grace us with their presence. We know they love being in this town. We love having them. 
Um, it's a really special relationship that those two have with the Melbourne community. Novak has always been seen as the antithesis to, to those two. Um, he's seen as a bit of a bad sport on the court. Uh, he's, his language is ne has never been kind of um, uh, loving in the same way as the other two. Um, and he's, he's, a, he's a rougher figure. He's a, he's, a, he's a person who's not as easy to love. So he's an unpopular person to begin with. He's anti, he's, he's, he's becoming the face of the kind of worldwide anti-vaccine uh, sceptic community, um, just entrench that. So after weeks of speculation that he probably was not going to play because what exemption would he have? He's a fit and healthy tennis player and there's only like five heart conditions or an allergy that can actually exempt you from a vaccine. Hmm. There was real surprise and shock when it was announced that he had a vaccine exemption. And then the Victorian officials, uh, the day after he announced that vaccine exemption, refused to say what his uh, reasoning was. So that just that just fueled more anger. People thought it was a stitch up. People thought it was a sham process. No one really believed that he had a proper exemption. And then the federal government, I think, picked up on all of that anger. Uh, the federal government's in a quite a weak political position at the moment. They're facing a lot of scrutiny over their procurement of rapid antigen tests or lateral flow tests, as some people in Europe call them. Our summer is being characterised by this sense of absolute chaos uh, among at, at testing sites around the country where people are waiting five, six, seven hours to get a coronavirus test in massive queues. Um, no one can get a rapid test because there's just a shortage and you can't even buy them. So there's all these people getting COVID for the first time because the Omicron wave is really the first wave that is actually hitting Australia. We've been able to supp suppress or eliminate previous strains. So the summer has been uh, a disorderly and the federal government is coming under a lot of pressure politically for its procurement of these rapid tests. And Morrison's in a very vulnerable position. And there is a sense that after uh, deciphering the anger after that um, Instagram post, the federal government had a day to assess the, the issue politically. And by the end of that first day, in the hours before Djokovic arrived, there are some people who believe they made a political calculation that blocking him was a wise thing to do it, politically. It would take, it would dominate the media cycle for a number of days and it would make Morrison uh, look like someone who's blocked an entitled, unpopular person from entering Australia and also characterise the Victorian government, which is a, a strong political enemy of the federal government. You, you, your listeners must understand that. They're seen as a kind of socialist haven in Australia. Um, it allowed it allowed Morrison to, to criticise the Victorian government as well. So the political element is strong here as well. Yeah, there's been, in following the story from abroad, there's been a lot of back and forth between Dan Andrews, who is the premier in Victoria, the state of Victoria, and the federal government, and a lot of push in Poland. They've kind of both been on the various points, different sides of this issue. As Djokovic has remained this hot topic, and I think at some point Morrison said something along the lines of they would, you know, accept valid exemptions for athletes, and while while Andrew said they wouldn't, and then it was obviously a Victoria panel that approved an exemption, and then a federal panel that denied it in the end. So it's been kind of back and forth in a, in a tennis match, to use a fitting analogy here for this story. Um, I guess how much in terms of the actual legal decisions, whether they're at the border or then I guess whatever appeals process is coming out that we'll get to a bit later, how much would Djokovic's long history of anti-science, anti-vax, uh, you know, statements and, and preachings, how much would those be held against his credibility? Because I think a lot of people think it's just sort of, you know, overly convenient that someone who's made this such a part of his platform would suddenly have this rare medical reason to get uh, around this requirement. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, that raises the further question. I think one thing that I'm still yet to get my head around as well is why when Djokovic applied for his visa, the federal uh, border visa in the first place, which he would have done from overseas, why was his documentation not assessed in some sort of remote fashion uh, before he came to Australia? I had mine, yeah, I had mine, I had mine remotely assessed, yeah. You did, yeah. yeah. Um, this is someone who is a known, as you say, vaccine skeptic. So, and, and and clearly a fit and healthy person. So, one would assume that if you're a federal official who receives a visa claiming a vaccine exemption, instead of waiting until that person arrives, given his previous comments on this matter, as you say, given his clear philosophy on this matter, and given his personal health and age, um, you would assess those uh, medical claims while he's still in Serbia or Spain or wherever he was. Um, I, I certainly think that his, uh, his philosophy on this matter, his political stance clearly um, uh, indicated to the government that this is a person who might be trying to um, get around the system here. And I'm sure it put a, put a, put a extra element of rigor on his claim. But I think separate to his um, his, stand, his political stance on vaccines, I think his Instagram post flagging his, his, um, his intention and flagging his entry into Australia was the, was the greater catalyst. Because it, it does seem like, yeah, as we're sort of talking about who's to blame here and, and where various things fell apart and motivations. But the simple fact is that if Djokovic had just chosen to get vaccinated, he'd be able to play the Australian Open with no problem. And this is going to be a problem that's going to repeat itself if he continue, continues to want to play on tour in a lot of different countries that now are requiring vaccination in order to get across their borders, including the U.S., including France, including other places on the tour, um, I believe the U.K. too. I'm not totally sure of the picture everywhere, but it's going to become more and more the vaccines are required to get through immigration and various countries. And so this one, this is the first real standoff, but it won't be the last if he continues trying to be uh, getting around the rules, even if it's you know, I've seen debates about whether he thinks he's above the law, if he's applying for an exemption or not, if that's working within the rules or outside the rules. But either way, it's still kind of trying to take a side door into things rather than the preferred obvious route of just being vaccinated, like yep. so many are. Um, so speaking of, of doors and buildings and such, Novak Djokovic is now being held and detained in a building that I visited uh, yesterday. I was curious to see this, this scene there at the Park Hotel. It goes by a few different names, which is on uh, Swanson Street, very near downtown Melbourne, uh, pretty much in downtown Melbourne, and uh, near the CBD, as they say here, the Central Business District. It was wild seeing something that is essentially a, you know, largely a, a refugee detainment center in the center of such a big, vibrant city. I mean, usually I think we think of like refugee camps being on the outskirts, you know, sort of tents and things in the middle of nowhere, uh, desert sort of places this is in the middle of a city and Djokovic is being held there and this is shining an international spotlight suddenly on this on this place you talk about how Djokovic wound up at this place and then what this place is well this place is it's the federal government's immigration detention center in Melbourne they have a immigration detention center that's more uh that's as you say closer to to the appearance of a jail in a different location I don't think they wanted to send Djokovic to something that resembled a jail for um, appearance purposes. I think they wanted to claim to the international media and to the um, Victorian public that he was being sent to a city hotel, which, you know, in essence, it is a city hotel and it's probably a three or four star hotel. So it's a place that is comfortable to stay in, um, which 
it is similar to places he would have stayed in in the past, although maybe not since he acquired the level of wealth he now has. Um, so this place, the Park Hotel, has a really interesting history in Victoria. It changed its name about a year ago. It used to be called the Ridges Hotel because in June of 2020, when Victoria had effectively and Australia had effectively eliminated the coronavirus from its shores because we had a very strict elimination policy, a international traveller in that hotel infected security guards and hotel staff at the hotel. The virus then leaked out of that hotel and into the Victorian community and sparked a really significant wave of, uh, significant in the Australian context, wave of coronavirus cases in mid to late 2020, which killed close to, um, led to close to a thousand deaths in just Victoria alone, which remains by far the most significant wave of cases in Australian history. It was an absolute political scandal that this quarantine hotel leak could happen. Um, and this hotel, the Ridges Hotel, was named in just about every single story that was written at the time. So it changed its name with new owners, I think, uh, in the middle of last year. And the immigration detention hotel in a, in a suburb, a few, a few suburbs north of this hotel, was deemed inadequate for a bunch of asylum seekers who had come to Australian shores seeking um, seeking refuge, but who came via boat without proper documentation and who were assessed as, as being non-legitimate refugee candidates, uh, candidate, um, applicants who uh, were deemed to be uh, coming here illegally and put into immigration detention. Victor Australia's border policies have received uh, international scrutiny for their toughness. They were instituted first under a conservative prime minister, Tony Abbott, who became a bit of an international pariah and was criticised by the UN on a number of occasions for our, our border policies in which we um, intercepted boats that were arriving here and took the individuals, put them into offshore detention, or some of whom who arrived here were put into detention centres locally. Some of these people in the hotel have been in uh, immigration detention in Australia for many years, um, and all they're doing is seeking asylum. So um, as you say, it's absolutely not a place that uh, the Australian government wants international scrutiny on. Some of the refugees were putting their faces against the windows last night, looking out to the cameras and putting love heart signs up and posters uh, pleading their case, which I think were beamed around the world. So um, not a good moment for the federal government and also just an unusual place for the world's number one tennis star to be to be uh, to be staying for a few days. Some of the protesters I was I was hearing there saying were in reports were talking about sort of poor conditions in the hotel and unsafe things and maggots and food and the reports that Djokovic had bugs in his room or things like that. You're saying it's a sort of three, four star hotel. And I think it is still open to the public. You still can book rooms there uh, in certain parts of the hotel. Is what do you have a sense of what the conditions are? Is this a a, a hovel, a, a rough place to be, or is it is it reasonably okay in there? I think the hotel and its facilities and its kind of uh, furnishings are of a of a of a decent quality of a three or four star hotel. But I think the problem would be. It's, is that it's run by this um, multinational services provider called Serco, which is a UK-based um, many billion dollar company that runs private jails, uh, private ho private hospitals, uh, does stadium management, and is known in Australia for its really, really uh, poor treatment of uh, uh, people in immigration detention, its poor treatment of uh, workers that employ it employs on minimum wage or potentially below the minimum wage. So one would imagine, and I haven't been in there, obviously, but one would imagine that they're running this place at the absolute bare minimum cost, Circo, because it's a money-making machine and they're a private provider. 
and uh, the people inside are unfortunately in our society not the kinds of people that a big multinational would deem uh, fit for high-level treatment. So if Djokovic is in one of those rooms that are serviced by Serco and not the private hotel that runs the other rooms, I could imagine that the, the, the standard of the quality of um, the interior and maybe the food and other things are not of a great quality. Hmm. And this is probably a stupid question, but during the Australian Open quarantines last year, players were given chances to go outside and practice tennis occasionally. Is, there, is Djokovic going to be stuck in this room? Is he going to be given sort of, you know, exercise opportunities? He's still here to try to compete in a tennis tournament that starts in about 10 days and that he was the favorite to win. Um, I'm not sure if he still is at this point, but, but what would, what would the sort of, would he just be kept in there until, um, we'll get to what his proceedings are lastly, but is the plan is that he just be in this room foreseeable future? No, no yard time. At, at this point, and I think we'll learn more on this today, but I think he might be stuck in this room until Monday because Monday is when the final hearing is set for the federal court injunction hearing, at which point he will either uh, be asked to, the, the, the visa revocation will either be upheld or um, overturned. So he will either go back um, to Europe or wherever he, he chooses to go or go into Melbourne's um, community and go and compete in the Australian Open. But I don't believe until Monday he'll have access to, to training courts or practice facilities. They may be able to put a, um, you know, a bike or a treadmill into his room, but I'm not certain he'll be able to leave. The judge in yesterday's proceeding um, asked lawyers whether the hotel he was at had access to training facilities and obviously the judge believed that that might be a um a point of contention for his lawyers if that if he's stuck until the um, end of this legal proceeding in a hotel with no training facilities that would clearly uh, prohibit him from training for a for a major tournament he's trying to compete in so it's in the mind of the judge but i don't i don't think there is any discussion of moving him before monday so he's in a he's in a bad predicament and for someone who's so regimented about their training and so paranoid about their physical condition, I imagine that's a source of great anger for him. And, and nutrition. I mean, if he's not getting the quality, yeah. he's very, very finicky about the food he eats and very precise about those sorts of things. And so just getting this sort of, you know, tray of gruel, essentially that he's getting, you know, obviously probably not literally that, but, you know, essentially this food that he'll see that way um, as being unfit for him is could be definitely adding to his sort of, uh, anguish at the moment. Um, so, like you said, there's a, a hearing on Monday. This there's an injunction filed by Djokovic's lawyers uh, against the deportation because original thoughts was he could have been on a plane home already. You know, essentially 24 hours later, um, but he's not. He's staying during an injunction. What what are they appealing on? What grounds? And what do you think is the likelihood that he'll be be successful? Yeah. So the federal government ordered him to leave Australia last night. Australian time, so that on the night of the day he arrived, the legal proceeding began at four o'clock and it was clear from the federal government's lawyers at that point that they were happy for um, to delay Djokovic's deportation, to not send him away immediately in order for him to essentially um, have procedural fairness and allow this trial, or not trial, allow this matter, this injunction hearing to play out and give Djokovic the, the fair opportunity to um, to remain in Australia and not have to kind of leave for a few days and then come back if his, if his um, injunction is successful and it overturns his visa. We haven't actually heard the lawyer's arguments yet. The two or so hours of proceedings yesterday were really administrative and about timelines for the, for the, for the hearing. Um, we'll hear more from the lawyers today, but one would imagine Djokovic's lawyers will argue that 
he wasn't treated fairly, his documentation was sufficient, and that the two other officials, two other Australian Open officials or player, one player, one official arrived on the exact same exemption he did and got into the country. So we're yet, yeah, exactly. We're yet to hear exactly what the lawyer's claims are, but they will attempt to, to say that on the evidence provided to the officials at the border, it was fair and reasonable for a different decision to be made and that he should have been let in. It's hard to it's hard to see a way for him to succeed, though, I should say, Dan. Again, I haven't heard the lawyer's arguments. So I'm, I'm going off minimal evidence here and just going on a bit of a gut feel. But the border officials have absolute discretion under their uh, under federal law to block or not block a person who is applying for an exemption. Um, you would have assumed that lawyers would have been actively and heavily involved in those hours when Djokovic's claims were being assessed. They would have been acutely aware that there was a legal challenge likely to hit them if they blocked him. So they would have they would have prepared for this moment and one would assume they would have been acting within within the law. So it's hard to see a situation in which Djokovic uh, can prove, Djokovic's lawyers can prove that border officials made an unreasonable decision under the laws that they, they their own government made. Has this, has this been positive for, for I guess, Scott Morrison's government and everything here? One of the conversations I've heard or sort of thoughts I've heard or criticisms I've heard is that this makes Australia look bad on the world stage. It's been sort of one of the fears. I got to say, as a, as a international person here, I don't personally sense that. I haven't sensed that really people think that Australia is, you know, a joke for having this this thing here. I think people sort of appreciate maybe on some level them standing up to someone trying to get around rules. Uh, but where, where does that sense come from that Australia, if you've sensed that too, that Australia, you know, um, its international reputation is somehow on the line in this, in this story. Obviously, there's a lot of focus on the government here and the rules, but... I'm not sure, personally, I'm not sure it's damaging per se. That's interesting to hear that from you. I think there's a, there's a because often the outsider's perspective on a country is, is more valuable than someone who is in the echo chamber of that country. But I think I think where that where that uh, school of thought stems from is that there has been this, this, uh, this conception that's grown over time during the pandemic in Australia, particularly among uh, libertarians and people on the right of politics, that... Australia and particularly some state governments' extremely strict coronavirus measures has made Australia look overly draconian and illogical on the world stage. Often our store, often stories that come out of Australia are stories along the lines of world's longest lockdown or yeah. someone being detained for six months for breaking a border policy or states erecting borders to other states on, on, on the basis of another state having five daily infections or something like that. So there is this sense that Australia has become a haven for government overreach and overreaction in, 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 during the pandemic, while other countries have accepted the virus within its community and moved into a phase of living with the virus. So an episode like this, where someone is blocked on potentially a technicality who had already received an exemption, as we have 40,000 daily cases in the country, the risk of him actually contributing to a worsening public health outcome is, is zero. I think there is a sense that this is just another illogical decision by an Australian government that makes us look a bit silly on the international stage. But as you say, maybe there'll be, um, maybe there'll be praise for the Australian government for, for its strong pro-vaccine stance on the international stage. It's, it's, it's definitely not clear cut. I think I think what you're saying there definitely is certainly in, in right wing circles in the U.S. They see Australia as sort of a 
a horror story for, you know, they talk about concentration camps or internment camps, whatever the phrases they're calling of people who've tested positive or people who refuse to get vaccinated or things like that. And that, that definitely is there, that sentiment that Australia is this sort of worst case scenario, dystopian place there. I'm not sure. Maybe they, maybe the Djokovic thing for them fits their narrative, but I think the Djokovic thing in isolation doesn't quite, you know, evoke such horror to sort of have a rule and then stand by it, I think actually seems relatively coherent um, in a lot of ways. But yeah, but we didn't get into this so much. But I think part of the reason why there was so much anger uh, about and why this was so politically appealing to Morrison um, and others, and I'll show you, because certainly lots of politicians wanted a piece of this, of the Djokovic action uh, to score points with it potentially, was the sense that, you know, Australians have been through a lot of yeah. what is phrase here is, is major sacrifices and hardships with the with the lockdowns and certainly a lot of interstate lockdowns uh not being able to see family including you know dying relatives in other places and being kept from that and very few exemptions being given i think that backdrop of sort of collective sacrifice and and novak djokovic is getting sort of tagged in tweets i've seen about you know i couldn't go see my dying mother so why should he get to come play a tennis tournament it's not that's not novak djokovic's fault that you couldn't go see your your dying parent or whoever it may be but it is something that's sort of in the certainly in the atmosphere here that i think colors perceptions of of this and just just on that point you say it's not novak djokovic's fault it's it's absolutely not but it is it is open to him and djokovic is someone who's rumored to be you know kind of the next serbian president he's he's someone who understands he's someone who understands public sensibilities and has a good has a good feel for these things the, the contrast I'd make is between Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal. So it's absolutely not Djokovic's fault that someone couldn't see their grandma across the border because there was a border uh, erection in between Australian states, but he could absolutely acknowledge the hardship Australians have been through and explain uh, why he, he, he had an exemption while acknowledging that it might frustrate the Victorians who pay a lot of money to see him when he arrives here. Um, that would go a long way to stemming some of that anger. Rafael Nadal is a much more, um, uh, uh, is someone who has a much greater sense of the Victorian mood at the moment. He's come in and said yesterday, I understand why there's a vaccine mandate. This state and the world has gone through a lot and uh, people have had to sacrifice a lot. There have been long, very, very kind of um, brutal lockdowns in Victoria. And Nadal effectively said something along the lines of, these are people who have gone through a lot. Um, and it makes sense that there would be um, a vaccine policy uh, because that is that is the mindset of the state. That is that is a comment that clearly shows Nadal gets the public mood. Djokovic um, has not played his played his cards as, as wisely. So if he was to get in, I really feared that there'd be um, something thrown at him on Senate court or people protesting outside his press conferences. It may it may have been ugly, and I, I don't think that would have been a good look for Tennis Australia or or the Victorian. The Victorian state it would have been an ugly thing. That's one thing I got to say. I, I was sort of surprised to hear from people, Tennis Australia sources, who were saying that Craig Talley had been really working hard for months to try to find a way to get Novak in. I just didn't think it was worth it. To I thought this would be optically terrible for someone who, as you said, who as people know, is not especially popular here. Um, even if he has won the tournament, he's conspicuously absent. I've been fascinated by from all the promotional materials from Tennis Australia. There's like 30 different players, roughly, maybe not that many, but a lot of different players uh, featured on posters and advertisements. And the nine-time champion of the tournament and defending events champion is conspicuously absent from that. So this interesting relationship, maybe they thought it was a vandalism risk to have him on posters. I mean, who knows? But like, it's uh, it's interesting how 
yeah, they're, how they're wanting him here, but also him being at the tournament, um, I'm not sure is a net positive. I mean, from a competitive level, yes, you want all the best players in the world there, but it certainly would not be a, a popular on-court figure. And it, it just struck me as a sort of odd calculation the tennis Australia was making to be willing to risk so much for one player when I really do believe that even someone as great as him, that the, a Grand Slam tournament is always bigger than any individual player. Yeah. A Vic- Victorian officials, including senior ministers in the Victorian government and the Premier's office, for the months leading up to the tournament when it seemed as if Djokovic would not play because he's not vaccinated, they were very comfortable with that, that outcome. They knew that there would be a lot of anger towards Djokovic. They knew it would probably be political, po- politically popular for the Victorian government to have a strict vaccine mandate that blocked Djokovic because of his, his public persona. So when they, when they heard that an exemption was within the realms, when Craig Tiley started talking about an exemption in private, in private meetings, I think there was a lot of surprise in the Victorian government that that was an avenue that uh, Tennis Australia was seeking for Djokovic because, as you say, uh, they knew the optics would be terrible. So the fact that we even got to the point of him seeking an exemption was a surprise to a lot of people. Well, this was not a surprise that you were tremendous on this topic, Paul. Thank you very much uh, for your time here. I don't want to keep too much more, but I'm sure hopefully things settle down for this, I would imagine, in this story uh, for a couple of days until Monday when obviously the, the hearings happen and a final verdict is rendered. Um, but we'll stay tuned to your coverage and, and thank you very much for making sense of it all. here. I really appreciate you having me. Thanks, Ben. So thank you very much to Paul Sakal for being on the show today and really, really telling the story in an incredibly deep and knowledgeable way that hopefully you all found as illuminating as I did. And thank you also to our Patreon backers. We thank every episode who have backed us at patreon.com slash no challenges remaining. We thank our Slam Champ level backers every episode, and they are Antonio Maycumber, Sean Mulroy, Leah Williams, Susanna W., Ashley Keel, Mary Carrillo, James Hindle, Liz Kennel, Anna Valinder, Jonathan Weinbaum, Timothy Liu, and Jean Simeon, and our GOAT backers, Pam Shriver and J.O.D. To play us out, here is one of the first songs inspired by this whole saga by Tom Cardi. It's an Australian love letter to Novak Djokovic. And we'll see you later. Bye, guys. It's so hard to say goodbye We did not mean to hurt you We did not mean to lie When we granted your medical exemption to the Australian Open I guess we wondered why You did not see the signs of Novak, we were being sarcastic Read between the lines You're not allowed inside Novak wants a medical exemption But you lied and now you're stuck in detention We believe you if you didn't spend two years saying Me no like you vaccine Novak, no get vaccine Novak, stop being such a baby